sometimes things aren't quite what they seem. Uh, they may be what they seem, but there's more to them than when we first look. Uh, you might get an idea of what I'm talking about if you were to think about that uh, uh, original movie, The Karate Kid, the very first one. Do you remember that one? Our hero, Daniel, finds himself the target of a lot of other kids, and especially one of those youngsters. And uh, they were all the very wealthy, and, uh, and they all also knew karate, and they were not afraid to demonstrate that karate on his body and uh, give him quite a beating. And uh, Daniel was uh, uh, not happy about that, needless to say, and um, they were always threatening him with, uh, with that, and he had to uh, be careful about where he went and the kinds of things that he did. And then one night he discovered that the janitor of the apartment building where he lived knew karate. He discovered it in a, in a particularly unpleasant way. He was getting beat up again by these same kids, and Mr. Miyagi, the janitor, crosses the fence and comes to his rescue. And so Daniel realizes he knows karate, and he was tired of the beatings up, and he wanted to learn it himself so he could defend himself. So he asks him, would he teach him? And Mr. Miyagi said that he would. So the next day, he shows up at his house, and instead of being taken into a dojo or put in one of those nice uniforms that they wear, uh, he was given a task to do. He had to paint the fence. And Mr. Miyagi was very specific about the way he had to paint the fence. Paint the fence up and down. First this board with the right hand, and next board with the next hand. Paint the fence. And so Daniel did it, and it was a long fence. And he spent the whole day doing it. At the end of the night, Mr. Miyagi said goodbye, and he came back the next day. And then the next day, he gets to sand the deck. And he's down on his hands and knees, sand the deck, back and forth, right hand, left hand, and it was a big deck. And once again, all day, he spent sanding that deck and Mr. Miyagi says good night, and he went home. The next day he comes back, and, and Mr. Miyagi had all these cars, and Daniel has to wax the cars, and it's wax on, wax off, wax on, wax off, right? And he does all of that waxing. The next day he comes back, and Daniel's about to be given a task, and he kind of loses. He says, well, I haven't come in here to teach you karate. And that's when Mr. Miyagi revealed to him that all of those things he was doing, the paint, the fence, sand, the deck, the wax on, wax off, were all defensive moves. And, and what Miyagi was doing was building in him a muscle memory. And so when he demonstrated it, every time Miyagi made a move at him, he made the proper move, whatever it was, to defend himself. There was more going on than he might have thought. Mr. Miyagi did get his fence painted. He got his deck sanded. He got his cars waxed. But Daniel learned those defensive moves in a better way than he could have ever learned it. Well, the book of Revelation, in some ways, is like that. When we look at it, there's more going on there than we may have originally thought. 
Most of us, when we look at the book of Revelation, we think about it. We think about it as a book of the end times. And it is that. It's, it's every bit of that. It tells us what is going to happen in those last days. But it does more than that. And I think we've seen that as we've been together. I mean, it addresses us in our day. You know, there are people all over the world, and there have been down through the centuries, who are going through persecutions like what happens here in this book. And they have found strength and solace and comfort and encouragement in it. But it's not just for people there. I think as we've been together, we have learned things together from this book that has affected our lives. The seven churches were given instructions and corrections so that they might live as they should. And we were able to take those things and apply them to our lives too. And so there's more here to this book that might meet the eye. And one of the things that to me is so fascinating about this book of the Revelation is that it is so completely evangelistic. I mean, the heartbeat of this book is evangelism. And, 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 and we sometimes miss that because we're so busy concentrating on the things that are going to happen in the last days. And yet, when you are carefully reading this, when you study it, you begin to realize that God's heart beats for the lost, and that was what comes through in this book. And that's true. Right down to the very last thing on the timeline of human history which we're going to look at this morning. So I want to invite you to join me once again in the book of the Revelation, chapter 21 this time, where we're going to look at the first eight verses. Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. And of course, we'll have those passages up on either side of me. Now, if you remember the last time we were together, we, we saw that uh, our human story has taken all these various twists and turns, things that we wouldn't expect uh, as, uh, as they came our way. And we saw last time, for instance, that when Jesus returned and, um, and uh, uh, conquered the Antichrist and the beast uh, um, at the beginning of his reign, that um, Satan was not cast into the lake of fire, which is what we would have expected. Instead, he was locked into prison. And we also saw that, that that battle of Armageddon, which we often think of, or many people often think of, as the last of all battles, really wasn't, that there was one more battle that was yet to come. And that battle would come at the end of the thousand-year reign when Satan was released from his prison and he would go out and he would then once again deceive the nations. And all of those people who had been living at that time or will be living at that time, whose loyalty to Christ was only on the surface, would end up following Satan and they would gather together against the people of God and then the last battle would come and those people would be defeated. And then we have the great white throne judgment and all those people whose names were not written in the book of life would be cast into hell and that brings us to our present chapter today chapter 21 and verse 1 and this is what we read there then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea now I don't know if you remember or not but last chapter at the very end uh, it says that the heaven and the earth, at the great white throne judgment, the heavens and the earth fled from the face 
of Jesus as he sat on that throne. And the only thing that was left at that time were living creatures, those things that would live forever. And they stood before the throne and before the judgment of God. And so there was a need for a new heaven and a new earth. Now John doesn't tell us how that happens. All he does is he tells us that he saw this new heaven and earth. And that really is an incredibly miraculous thing that God creates this new heaven and this new earth. But it's not any more miraculous than the first creation when he simply spoke all of that worlds, all of the universe into existence, nor is it any more incredible than the fact that he sustains this present word by the power uh, world, by the power of his word. And so he has created or he will make this new heaven and earth and he will make it for his people. There will be this place that will have never been stained by sin. It'll be a place of glory and wonder. Now, I I just have to make a comment about this statement here. It says that there won't be any sea, and and I think that saddens some people. It saddens me, and I've talked to other people. It makes them sad because we like the ocean. We enjoy going there, right? And, um, And yet I think that this statement might be symbolic. The making of the new heavens and earth is not... That we know happens because there are other passages in the scripture that tell us exactly that, that, uh, that that's going to happen. You know, Revelation is a highly symbolic book, but the creation of the new heavens and the earth is beyond a doubt. That is exactly what's going to happen. But this might be symbolic because the sea or the ocean often stands for chaos. And so what he's saying here is there will never be any chaos again. Now, that's what I think. And I think that also because when God made the original creation, there was an ocean there, and there was nothing evil or wrong about it. I could be wrong. (laughs) Maybe there won't be any sea in the new heavens and the new earth. And if there's not, I can tell you there will be something better. But God will make a new heaven and a new earth. But something else happens that the uh, writer tells us about. And he tells us that I saw, in verse 2, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So this city is is the new Jerusalem. It's like the old Jerusalem, but unlike it. The old Jerusalem was kind of a shadow of what is yet to come. The old Jerusalem, the word means city of real peace. And it often wasn't at all such a city. Sometimes the city itself was guilty of transgressions against God. But this will be the new Jerusalem, the city of real peace. And it's a holy city. That means that's the character of it. Not only is it set apart for God, but the character of the city will be holy. It'll be righteous. It'll be pure. It'll be good. And it comes down from heaven. It's not part of our creation. It comes from the heavenly Father, and it's a gift to the earth, and it's a gift to his Son. It's dressed as a bride for the Lord our God. And so we, we, we hear this thing that is yet to come in our future. A new heaven and a new earth where, where, where no sin, no sadness, no 
anything wrong has ever been. And that is waiting for us in the future. But there's more that we're being told here about that time. And so we read in verse 3, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, I'm going to stop right there. This loud voice is, is loud because it's authoritative and it's because the speaker wants everyone to hear what's to be said here. And this loud voice from the throne says this, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. We're being told about this last day that when everything is finished and done, this new heaven and new earth that will be holy and beautiful and pure in the city that comes down and we're being told that God will be there and that voice coming from the throne, that is our Savior speaking you see, Jesus is God, right? And so when we hear a voice coming from the throne, we know that it's God who's speaking. But, but here he's, he's speaking of God in the third person. He's not saying, I will come down and be with them. He's saying God himself will come down. Jesus is promising us that in that day, at that time, in the new heaven and the new earth, God the Father himself will dwell with his people. Now you understand that in the millennium, Jesus was still, he's there with them, he will be there with those who are in that millennium, that's you and I if we put our faith in Christ, but Jesus is still at that point the mediator between God and man. It's not until the new heaven and the earth is formed that God the Father actually comes and dwells among his people. It won't happen until that day. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's making us a promise that when that new heaven and earth are created, when they are made, that God the Father will dwell with us. And he will dwell with us. He's, he's not going to live like on a castle up on a hill somewhere and we're going to be in a valley. He's going to be right in our midst. And in a sense, he's going to be one of us, although he's still almighty God and still our heavenly father. And that's what we have to look forward to. And the emphasis is there. Not only is he dwelling with me among his people, he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. What Jesus Christ wants to communicate to us through that loud authoritative voice is in that day, in that new heaven and the new earth, God the Father will be with us. Now what he's told us so far is about that place, if we can put it that way. It, it almost seems a shame to use a, a term as simple as place to describe that, right? And as a matter of fact, when it, uh, the Bible goes on in the rest of the chapter, when it describes the, the new Jerusalem to go into great detail, but right now, all he's done is sketched for us that that holy city is coming down. And he's talked about that place. But now he, he changes a little bit. And he begins to tell us what it'll be like for those who will be there at that time. And so we read in verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. I want you to think about that just for a moment. Every sorrow you have ever felt, God is going to wipe away. I mean, think about a child, right, who hurts, 
him herself or herself that they run to their mother or their father and they're in tears and mom and dad picks them up and, and they wipe those tears away and pretty soon that child goes on their own way right and everything is okay in the world I know there are things too big for moms and dads to take care of but there is nothing that is too big for God and the promise here is that one day we will be in the presence of our Heavenly Father and He, He will wipe every tear away. And whatever sorrow we've known in the past will be gone. He goes on to say this. He says, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Do you understand what he's saying? Not only is the things in the past, will they be dealt with, but nothing in our future at that point can ever harm us again. There will be no more death because we will be alive and full of life forever and ever and ever. There will be no more mourning. There will never be again a time when we lose someone that we love. There will never be another day where we have to say goodbye to someone. There will be um, no more crying. There will be no, nothing to disappoint us. There will be no more pain, nothing to hurt us. Because the old order of things has passed away. Did you hear that's a finality in that statement. That old order where sin was, where sin, that sin marred, the thing that brought all of the sadness and sorrow and pain and crying and everything else in our life, it's gone. It's passed away, and there's a finality of it. God has banished it. It's gone. It'll never be again. Instead, in its place, there is a new heaven and a new earth and a new city where it's all going to be good. And then the scriptures do something (laughs) that we wouldn't have expected again. You know, the trajectory of our mind right there when we read that. I I know, I know hearing those things. I know we don't fully understand what that means. I mean, mean, all it is, it's kind of like a shadow of things to come. It's it's kind of like the echo of a beautiful song or the smell of cooking that is far away. And yet, yet, those passages, that picture is food for our soul and our minds at that point want to go forward don't they there's a trajectory that it's on and we want to start thinking what would it be like to be there on that new heaven and earth not only to have our sorrows wiped away but never to have any pain or any of that again we begin thinking of things I think about some of the Narnia tales I would be able to run up the edge the side of a mountain a steep mountain without being out of breath or, or swim a, a, a swift river or, or, or baby maybe even fly. (laughs) But that's not what the Scripture does. There's a sense in where our trajectory is changed and God brings us to another place when he says in verse 5, He who was seated on the throne said, I'm going to stop right there for just a minute. Right now, this is God the Father who's speaking. In the book of the Revelation, there are a couple of times where we know the Father is speaking, and there's a couple of other times where we are pretty sure that he is speaking. But here, all the commentators agree that these words that come from his uh, mouth now are God the Father who's speaking. And he says this, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything 
new. Do you hear those words? I am making everything new. That's present tense. Once the new heaven and new earth comes, it's already made new. But what he's doing now in our day and every day, every day that has been in the past and every day that is yet to come until that new heaven and new earth is made, is he is making everything new. A couple of verses that I would read for you to remind you of that. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. Or there, or in Second Corinthians, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. God is right now and here in this place making everything new. Maybe that, that making new began at the incarnation, or maybe it was the resurrection, but God is making everything new. And, and he wants us to know that. He wants us to understand that. It's his work. It's not our work. It's the work of God. And so he says this, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You know, you come here and you, you think, what is it going to be like? And he's given us this hint of that day to come. But then he turns us right back around and he brings us back to our day, there and now. And he says, today I am making everything new. And I want you to know that. It goes on in verse 6. He says this, he said to me, it is done. You know what that means? It means that what's going to happen here in chapter 21 in the verses that we read about already the new heaven and the earth, it's as good as already finished. You you can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. It's already done. And the reason is, is he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is everything. He's almighty God, and he will make all of this happen. But listen to what he says next. To the thirsty... I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Where are there any people in that new heaven and new earth that will be thirsty? That they'll be able to drink freely whenever they want from the water of the river of life that will flow through the holy city. Here he's talking about the thirsty. And he will give that water without cost. It's not anything that anyone can earn. And it's a spring of the water of life that he will give to any who come to him, who any who recognize their need for the living God. You know, Jesus talked about that water when he was here on earth. He said to the woman at the well, I can give you the water of life. He says about his disciples that there will be within us this well of water springing up to eternal life, meaning the Holy Spirit. And that comes out of us and it can, it can feed the hearts and souls of other people. And what he's saying here is just that, that to the thirsty, I will give without cost. I can't earn it. I can't buy it. There's no way they can get it except as a gift. And I will give them the water of life. And then he says this, those who are victorious will inherit all of this and I will be their God and they will be my children. 
Who is it that's victorious? <laughs> In the book of Revelation, we're told it's the one who overcomes. And how do we overcome? By putting our faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way anyone can overcome. It is the only way we will ever have victory. But if we have victory, we will inherit all this. It's, the word inherit is another one of those just really good words to hear and understand. When you inherit something, did you earn it? Did you buy it? Did you get it some way by hook or crook? It came to you. And you know, when you inherit something, usually it's from your parents, but it, it comes to you when that person passes, right? But here, all of this that he talked about will be ours. It'll be our inheritance. And the good thing is, God doesn't have to die for us to get it. He will live with us and be with us and enjoy it with us forever. Know what else we learn there? Our relationship with God is clarified. He says this. He says, those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God. And listen, they will be my children. You know, a servant can inherit something from his master. Usually it's to children. But a servant can, but here, all of God's people are his children. And so in that, in that new heaven, in that new earth, God will give us that. And, and, and he wants all people to enjoy that. And right now, he is at work in our world making things new and offering the water of life to people. And, and that's just such a, a wonderful thought, you know. And then we come to verse 8. <laughs> and listen to what it says. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. <sighs> you know, every time in the book of Revelation. And, and, and I suppose it's true in the Bible too. Every time we're told about the end of the wicked, it's because God wants us to care. He wants us to try to do something about it. We don't want anybody to go there, do we? Don't we want everyone to be able to enjoy that new heaven and earth with us. See, that's, that's what I mean. This book is so evangelistic. Everything that's written here is written to teach us as believers. It warns those outside the faith who read it what's waiting for them. But it's for us as believers. We, we get a glimpse of what God is doing behind the scenes so that we can be encouraged to share the faith with others. We see that our future is solid and sure and there's no reason why we should ever stop sharing the faith with other people around us. And it is the only hope that they have. And God is at work in our world today making everything new. And he wants us to be a part of that. 
And you get lost in trying to figure out everything that's going to happen on the end days and putting this thing in this place and that thing in that place and who comes where and what happens when and what we ought to be doing is taking Jesus Christ with us everywhere we go. Now, I, I have been saying that quite a lot, haven't I? And you think about how often I have said those words as we've made our way through this book. It really is pretty astounding. I'm going to do something a little different. I want to I, I kind of give you a way to, to think about this. I've challenged you any number of times that we ought to be sharing our faith with other people. Now I want to tell you how I think we should go about that. And the first thing I want to tell you is I think that we should not rely on ourselves. You know, I think that's what we do first. The first thing when somebody tells me or tells you that we need to share the faith with Jesus Christ, we start trying to, how do I do this kind of a thing? And all of a sudden, we feel all this weight and all this pressure on us. And I think, I think we're starting in the wrong place. We cannot rely on ourselves. And so my suggestion is to do something a little different. My suggestion is to begin by praying and asking God to give you the heart to want to share Christ with other people. And and then once you pray that, then I also want you to pray at the same time, you know, in that same prayer, that God will give you an opportunity to share the faith with someone, to tell somebody about Jesus. Now, I'm going to tell you what will happen if you do that. If you do that, you will find that your heart will start to change and you will start to care. You will start to want to share your faith with people. And, and you might also find out something else, that even before you think your heart is ready to do that, God may give you the opportunity to say something to someone. And you know, if that opportunity comes, one of two things are going to happen. You're going to do it or you're not. And if you do it, why, one of two things are going to happen. Either the person is going to respond... And you'll be glad that you spoke, or they're not. <laughs> now, Ann and I, when we were on vacation in South Carolina, sitting in the Pizza Hut, uh, the manager of the restaurant was serving tables that day, and he came and sat down with us, or kind of pulled up a table alongside of us, and started talking. And and Ann kind of turned that conversation and brought it to the faith. And then I was able to join in there, and. And and he had this kind of this attitude about the Bible, really, you know, how can you believe it? And why do Christians seem to pick and choose what they want to believe? And anyway, we were able to share some things with him about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you could see in his face that those words went home to his heart. I mean, there's, there's just, just this look that came over him, and, and I just knew those words went home, not because of anything we do, but because the Spirit of God was there and was at work. And then he walked away and never came back again. But you, you have that opportunity, and you share, and, and, and maybe they'll respond. And if they don't respond, 
or to respond in a good way, then you're going to realize, well, gosh, it's not so bad even to be rejected. (laughs) Even if they're mean to you, you end up thinking, is that all they got? (laughs) And if you don't share, then you confess that to God. And you start over. A new heaven and a new earth. They're going to come. And you and I, we put our faith in Christ. Our future is secure. God wants us to take that word out. He's already at work. Jesus came because he loved the world. The water of life is for free. He is today making everything new. And he's given us the privilege to be a part of that. Now, it's all about the end times. But it's not just about the end times. It's about our time, too. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your grace and goodness to us, and thank you for your word. Lord, we do look forward to that day. Some of us know what you meant when you said, if we don't hate our own life, Lord, we see the things that are in us yet, and we hate those things. But we rejoice in the fact that you're at work in us, changing us, and that you, Lord, are saving people all over our world, and that you have called us to be a part of that process. Help us, Lord, to take the steps whatever they are, however small they might seem to be, help us to trust you and in faith take those steps and at least begin praying, believing, trusting you to change us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.